Welcome to Tradecraft. International trade makes headlines, especially when disputes arise among countries. Business is on the front lines of these disputes, but they are waged over politics and law. Join host Colin Janik in conversation with trade expert and Georgetown University professor Mark Bush as Tradecraft takes an in-depth look at trade issues making headlines today and the ones that will be making headlines tomorrow. This is Tradecraft. Welcome back. Thanks, Colin. Ready for episode 51. Mark, COVID-19 has delayed a lot of things, but as you describe in your most recent op-ed in The Hill, one of those delays at the WTO could actually have a silver lining. Tell us about that. The WTO recently announced that it will be late in issuing 12 rulings, all of which involve the United States. The 12 rulings were premised on cases triggered by President Trump's Section 232 National Security Steel and Aluminum Tariffs. The U.S. is on the defense in seven of these. We're going to lump them together under the heading Certain Measures Cases. The issue here is that there are no wins to be had, regardless of what the rulings look like. And the rulings are now due latter half 2021. The U.S., however, is on the offense in five of these cases. Let's call these the additional duties cases. Okay. The U.S. is certainly likely to get something out of these, but it's doubtful that the fight is worth the candle. What do you mean by that? So where we are is at a unique moment in the sense that the WTO delay could be good news for the Biden administration in as much as this would be an opportune moment to negotiate out of this mess and to make all 12 cases go away. First and foremost, because on the defense, there is no way for the U.S. to win. And the worst outcome of all would, in fact, be winning. That's because of the slippery slope. Countless countries would shut down their markets to U.S. exports, bolstered by the idea that, that somehow this national security angle could be expanded in a way to include anything, including trade imbalances. And on the offense, these cases are largely about how the seven countries retaliated, which surely isn't kosher, but because of the way the U.S. complaints are written, isn't worth the candle either. And Mark, before we go any further, let's just list out the countries involved in these 12 cases. The certain measures cases were filed by, in sequence of filing, China, India, the EU, Canada, Mexico, Norway, Russia, Switzerland, and Turkey. The additional duties cases were filed by the United States in the following order. Canada, China, the EU, Mexico, Turkey, Russia, India. Canada and Mexico, however, struck deals with the United States in negotiating USMCA, so the 16 falls to 12 cases in total. Got it. So with that established, let's go back to the beginning of this issue. The EU, in its particular case, worries that these cases could spell the end of a rules-based multilateral trading system. That's not because they're really complicated. It's because of the way the U.S. is arguing the national security exception, GATT Article 21. 
Now, we all knew that two prior disputes were largely interesting because they were going to rehearse this argument. The exception for national security. Neither case, however, ended in a way that would be encouraging of the U.S. theory. And in fact, the U.S. trotted out its theory in both cases as a third party. No traction had. On the other hand, the U.S. is certainly right that the EU and four other countries had no business retaliating without the blessing of the WTO, scripting the U.S. Section 232 tariffs as a safeguard in disguise, and then exacting concessions through their own tariffs at a level of their choosing. All told, you've got the makings for a mess. And that mess can be averted if, in fact, the Biden administration seeks to get out from under these Trump tariffs and do something before the rulings come in, second half of 2021. Right. And just as a bit of a refresher, President Trump issued 25% tariffs on steel and 10% tariffs on aluminum way back in 2017, and did so using Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. It was provocative stuff. Other presidents had also catered to certain interests in steel by pandering with safeguards, but not so Trump. Trump decided to be innovative and he trotted out Section 232. The EU theory, in its case, and remember, its case is one of seven pending against the United States, is premised on the notion that the Section 232 tariffs are really a safeguard in disguise. As per the agreement on safeguards of the WTO, the U.S. was required to offer compensation to the countries hit with these tariffs, the U.S. didn't offer the compensation, and these countries decided to take the compensation in the form of what were widely called retaliatory tariffs. Europe, moreover, argues that there is no national security angle here, that it is impossible for the United States to defend, with the GATT 21 exception, any of its tariffs, and thus the U.S., is in the wrong. And needless to say, the U.S. theory is different. What does the U.S. argue? The U.S. argues that the Section 232 tariffs are not a safeguard, that Europe had no business retaliating, along with the other countries, because they're not a safeguard, and that, moreover, it has, even though it doesn't like the term, already made affirmative defense in the form of GATT Article 21 i.e. national security. Moreover, the U.S. goes even further and says, GATT 21 is self-judging. It is relevant so long as we say it's relevant. And therefore, there's no there there. That leaves us with 12 cases, which as Europe describes it, are really just two sides of the same coin. And those two sides of the same coin raise two issues that are interesting for our purposes. Right. One is obviously national security. And the other is unilateralism. Now, these are themes that we've been rehearsing in many episodes in Tradecraft. It's almost as though we haven't been able to get away from these since Tradecraft debuted in 2018. 
And the timing isn't accidental. Obviously, the steel tariffs were provocative stuff, and everybody knew what this was going to build toward, namely a national security GATT 21 affirmative defense. And the U.S. has had ample opportunity to test out its theory of how GATT 21 works, right? Detail those cases if you would. The first case was DS-512, Russia traffic in transit. There the U.S. chimed in in support of Russia, which invoked GATT 21 for the first time, and demanded that it was self-judging that there was nothing really for the WTO to do in taking a look at the case more than simply reporting that GATT-21 had been invoked and calling it a day. The WTO disagreed. It said that whether there is an emergency in international relations is an objective, knowable fact. Now, when that ruling came out, we knew the Section 232 tariffs were going to be problematic. Because the decision by the WTO was, this isn't entirely self-judging. In fact, the emergency is knowable and therefore reviewable by the WTO. Right. And the second opportunity for the U.S. to beta test its theory came about in DS-567, Saudi Arabia IPR. There, the U.S., again as a third party, took a pretty hard line in support of Saudi Arabia, insisting that not only is it self-judging, i.e. 73B of TRIPS, which is the equivalent of GATT-21, but that there really is no need to discuss anything else about the case once, in fact, the exception has been invoked. That didn't fly, leading the U.S. to have to deal with now two rulings against its theory. In the Q&A before the panel in the current case, the U.S. takes this opportunity to take a pot shot at the idea of precedence, pointing out that its panel is not bound by either DS-512 or DS-567. That's a little odd in the sense that by that logic, we're even below the level of Japan Alcohol 2 as informing what we mean by precedence, never mind U.S. stainless steel from Mexico. That would be pretty tough because that would be to deny even the relevance of guidance, never mind binding precedent. Now, the language here is the stuff that we've been talking about now for many episodes, self-judging. It considers necessary. What's interesting about the current case is that the U.S. takes even a harder line than Saudi Arabia did. Saudi Arabia also stood by the notion that whatever Trip 73B said, it didn't require any follow-up discussion, that merely its invocation was sufficient for the purposes of DSU-11. That notwithstanding, it did admit that there is something to the notion that a good faith test should be applied. Now, in DS-567, Saudi Arabia boxes itself into a corner. It more or less concedes that that good faith test is pretty much the nexus that all third parties other than the U.S. are looking for in figuring out whether this is an exception that can be used, i.e., 
it considers necessary to achieve some sense of national security through the measure actually being employed. And that's a mouthful, but fortunately, we dedicate an entire episode to the workings of the logic of the ruling in DS-567. The U.S., however, in Q&A before its panel on the defense in this case, says no, that there isn't even the ability to take a look at good faith. That good faith is really something that is beyond the pale. That's a very hard line. And here's the bottom line to this episode. If the U.S. were to win on that, that would be the worst outcome. Because then what you'd have is the ability for any country, in the name of anything that sounds like a defensive gesture on commercial or trade interests, to do as they saw fit, given this expanded notion and self-judging expanded notion of what this all means. That would be scary stuff. In other words, we'd see falling dominoes all throughout the global economy, all premised on this. Now, the other side isn't going to go down without a fight. Sure, and clearly the other side is invoking all the insights from DS-512 and DS-567 in arguing against the United States. The panel seems to be pretty self-confident in terms of thinking through where it's sitting at the moment in light of those two rulings. Back in the day, under DS-567, you had the European Union as a third party saying, not only do we have to take a look at the nexus, we also have to compare what's being done to, quote, reasonably available alternatives. As if, moreover, the national security exception is subject to a least trade restrictive requirement. Canada says we'll do one better. Canada says in DS-567, you have to look at each individual measure to, quote, help to safeguard against abuse of the exception. That's more than a good faith test. That is the nexus really deep. The panel seems to be convinced that the third parties are asking relevant questions and have done so in the prior disputes. Question 30 issued by the panel to the United States and all seven of the countries involved in the litigation, is what's going on here between GATT 21 and DSTU Article 23? There's your link to the other cases. That's what Europe means by the flip side of the same coin. Will you draw that out a bit more? What's going on here is that the panel is asking about GATT 21 being self-judging in light of the fact that DSU Article 23 says all cases are supposed to go to the WTO and be heard by the WTO. Does self-judging mean these cases can't be heard? But by virtue of introducing DSU 23, you can see where this is headed. And it may not be to Europe's full liking because the U.S. doesn't mention DSU 23 in its filings against the additional duties cases. Question 34, the panel asks, if GATT 21 is self-judging, can it be abused? How does the U.S. respond? The U.S. says no. Paragraph 113, quote, the complainant has not argued that the United States sets out this interpretation in bad faith, nor could such a thing plausibly be argued. Does that mean that there is no good faith test? Does that mean that self-judging 
is pure? If so, there's your slippery slope. Again, the worst outcome here isn't that the U.S. loses, but rather that it wins. The U.S. does admit five paragraphs later that there is recourse to be had in the event that the U.S. is, or anyone else is, abusing the exception. The U.S. says, much as it did as a third party in DS-567, that they can have recourse to a non-violation complaint and retaliate. Saudi Arabia argued exactly the same thing in DS-567. That's not what DSU-23 is about. That really goes back almost to the U.S. defense on Section 301 against China, saying that a trade war is itself a solution to a dispute. There's no way this flies. Not a chance. Finally, with respect to the certain measures cases, there's one new wrinkle. Question 54. Now the panel is getting pretty emboldened. It asks, what about the language of Article 2.2 of the Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement? The panel rightly points out, this also says national security. So here's the question. Quote, does this provision, especially due to its use of the word shall, make reviewable by a panel the matter of whether a measure has been taken for national security purposes. In other words, as soon as the word national security is uttered, are we done? Is that really what you're saying? The U.S. can't possibly be saying that. This is not GATT 21. This is TBT 2.2. But it happens to say national security. That word shall is certainly interesting, but the point is, is it considers necessary so qualitatively different than shall that the mere invocation of national security means the panel is done. If only the appellate body had been given a chance to handle DS-567. So much for the certain measures cases. So Mark, to sum it up, the fear here can't be that the U.S. loses, but that the U.S. wins because... Because then you're going to see globalization fall apart. Big time. Not least because the U.S. is adamant in its understanding of both security and emergency and international relations that both encompass, quote, what one might consider commercial or trade relations. That is so much more than anything we saw in DS-512 or in DS-567. And that has to be the single worst outcome imaginable in the seven certain measures cases. Now let's take one jab at Europe under the context of unilateralism. Europe is right that the additional duties cases are the flip side of the certain measures cases. And you know that has to be true because of the way in which they came about. You've got Five countries retaliating for 232, and the U.S. decides to hit them for their unauthorized retaliation, but doesn't script it like that. The U.S. says, MFN. That's it. This is a GAT-1 case on the offense. No mention of DSU-23. There are five utterances in the U.S. first submission of unilateralism but no mention of DSU-23. The panel isn't buying it, though. 
the panel is going to ask some really interesting questions. For example, what's the relationship between a safeguard and GAT-21? Are they really so different? Could you imagine invoking one without the other? How would that work? This is deep probative stuff. You've got the panel pretty jazzed about, well, what is a safeguard? And what does the agreement on safeguards actually do in terms of limiting actions that might also appear as a GAT-21 action? How would you know the difference? Are they even, in fact, separable? Did Europe mean to unleash that part of the story? Well, we're getting these questions in the certain measures cases. You've got a lot of ambiguity about what does the agreement on safeguards actually say? What does it do? And how would you know if they were different? Well, that is the essence of the additional duties cases. And what makes that interesting for our purposes is that Europe has really opened a can of worms here by saying that the national security terrorists were really a safeguard in disguise, they have brought an unwanted spotlight on safeguards themselves. Safeguards have always been the easiest to abuse trade remedy, but this is really unwanted attention. But the other side to this is that there is no way the panel backs down from probing on the question of DSU-23. The U.S. case may be written as strictly MFN, but the panel is certainly going to be looking very closely at DSU-23 because that's where the line of questioning is under the certain measures cases. Moreover, get this, Europe in its submission actually says we should have all 12 cases be handled in some holistic effort. The seven panels are all the same for certain measures. The panels are all the same for additional duties. They know each other. You've got some crossover. Let's get the whole thing done. Two sides of the same coin. Well, that raises a really interesting question for the EU. Right. What about the unilateralism angle? Now, the U.S. doesn't raise it, probably because the narrative would have raised defensive liabilities not only in the certain measures cases, but in the Section 301 cases with China. That notwithstanding... The panel is certainly pushing in that direction and will have license to get even more into it when, in fact, you get a little more of that holistic view thing that Europe is calling for. It's interesting that there's no mention of DSU-23 in the additional duties cases, but there's no way that the theme of unilateralism isn't already in play, not least because the U.S. mentions it five times in its first submission. So we've covered the legal details. What about the political context? Here's the big sell. Biden's at the G7 right now talking about multilateralism. As we've talked about in prior episodes, any reset on trade is going to have to start with the U.S. making nice, nice with the European Union. There's no two ways about it. It would be a really big help to get rid of these 12 cases. Most importantly, because Europe is right. The thing about those certain measures cases is that, as Europe says, they really do risk the rules-based global economy. There's no ruling by which the U.S. wins. And so Biden has every incentive 
to try and make all of these cases go away. But he has a card to play. And that card is the unilateralism angle in the additional duties cases. Both sides were wrong. The U.S. should never have thought that it was going to win on GAT-21, but moreover should never have wanted to win on GAT-21. And Europe and its four compatriots certainly overplayed their hand in taking it upon themselves, not only to redefine the steel and aluminum tariffs as a safeguard, but to decide for themselves the level of compensation to exact through their own retaliatory strikes. Now, the two sides and all the others sit down and make these 12 cases go away. Because unless they do that, we've got some problems with one of the biggest asks that the EU is going to make of the Biden administration, and that is WTO reform. There are too many tidbits scattered throughout these cases, certain measures and additional duties, that aren't going to play well in terms of the conversation over WTO reform. This week, Europe has reached out a little bit to the U.S. by saying maybe the U.S. is making some valid points about WTO reform and even the appellate body. It's going to be important for the Biden administration to capitalize on this moment. And the moment, ironically, is because of delay of the WTO due to COVID. <laughs> right. There's no reason for Biden to be held within a straitjacket by virtue of Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs. No one ever thought these cases were going to be anything more than loser cases. The reality, though, is that there's a lot more to lose than just the tariffs on steel and aluminum. There are some foundational keys to the global economy that are also in play and not in a good way. But the flip side is also there. The EU and its four compatriots have vastly understated how wrong their effort was to redress the steel and aluminum tariffs. And while the U.S. didn't help itself by leaving out DSU Article 23, the reality is that Europe is right. Certain measures and additional duties are two sides of the same coin, and the panel in certain measures is already asking about DSU 23. And the U.S. is offering five utterances of unilateralism, despite not mentioning DSU-23 by name. So in short, you've got all the ingredients here for a negotiation that will not only help improve the transatlantic trading relationship, but get us closer to the prospect of actually engaging in a serious way on WTO reform. And we can't forget about the WTO's new director general. She's been advocating strongly for a serious engagement of the issues with respect to WTO reform. One of the nicest gifts that could be bestowed upon her at this very moment as she debuts in an unenviable time as Director General of the WTO would be to negotiate away 12 cases that have no upside and an awful lot of downside. Mark, thanks so much.